Well, hello, and thanks for giving this a listen. I'm Jack Drury. I'm the Artist Relations Specialist at Shaw UK. And as part of our MV7 launch this week, I have interviewed Michael Pettersson, who is the Shaw company historian in Chicago, where the company is based. And Michael Pettersson has a huge amount of knowledge about the business and our products. And I have interviewed him about the SM7B and how it relates to the MV7. It's a really interesting interview. I hope that you enjoy it and I uh, hope to see you on the next one. What is your official job title now at Shaw, Michael? What what do you do for it? <laughs> uh, well, it's it's director of corporate history, but I much prefer Sage. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds absolutely perfect. And, and in a nutshell, what do what does that mean, director of corporate history? What do you do for it? Well, we have an archive, and though I am not the coordinator of the archive, I basically uh, look for products to add to the archives on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Um, I do research in there when we get inquiries from customers around the world. Uh, I write technical tips and articles about mm-hmm. sure uh, history on a regular basis. Uh, I do webinars on it. There's actually, with 95 years of history, there's a lot to do. I even help out the legal department sometimes. Things come up about trademarks and logos uh, and patents. And you mentioned that you started working for sure in in 1976. Is that correct? Correct. So by my maths then, that means that you would have been working for the company around about the time the SM7B was bought to market. Remember, it started out as the SM7. Oh, of course, was, yes. Right. I started out with SM7, introduced in late 72, and the first units we sold were early 73. You know, many of these things get lost in history. So I've got a document that shows that's dated 72. It's kind of like the first flyer. But then I don't really find it in priceless to 73. So that's what I think. Late 72, early okay. 73 was when it came out. Yes. So that um, yeah, Only first... three years old then. <laughs> <laughs> three years into the company. So... Yeah. The the question that I have then in relation to what we're talking about today, when being in the company at that time, when SM7 hit the hit the portfolio, did Sean know it was going to be as big of a smash hit as it's become now? Did they look at it no. and think, God, this is going to be massive? No, it was it was kind of a dud. <laughs> <laughs> really? Where did it yeah, come it from? Kind of How did it get developed? Well, you have to go back to the early 60s. Um, there was a gentleman that worked at Shirt at the time named Bob Carr, and Bob Carr was a product manager. I think he was called the Professional Microphone Manager. And he came up with the concept of creating the SM series of microphones, the studio microphones. That's what SM stands for. Uh, and one of the first microphones he brought out was the SM5. And that was designed to be a microphone for uh, overhead boom use in studios. Uh, now, most overhead boom use back then were either um, ribbons or condensers. And the idea of an overhead boom microphone that was a dynamic, eh, yeah, I think Electro Voice had a few, but you know, it was something where the studio said, well, if you're going to sell products to us, we have to have what we need. So make a overhead boom microphone. So that came out in the in 1964. And there was an SM5A and an SM5B and eventually an SM5C. Most of the differences were impedance and some were low frequency roll off. But the internal guts of it was essentially a modified Unidyne 3. And the Unidyne 3 is the SM57, SM58, 545, 565. Um, it really wasn't a very big success. Primarily, not because it didn't work well, but it was a dynamic microphone. And so its output level, when you're trying to mic somebody from a distance doing dialogue, was pretty anemic. It wasn't a success. Around the late 60s, 
some radio stations started using it as a close-up on-air microphone. Of course, now you get the talker much closer, output level is no longer a problem. And they really loved the sound of it. Oh man, this is so great. And radio stations, it was particularly in the United States, um, started buying them. Now, there's only an infinite, you know, there's a finite number of radio stations and they only need a finite number of on-air microphones and our microphones tend not to break. So, you know, <laughs> the demand was quickly filled, right? Uh, and I, I like to tell a story that people thought we sold thousands and thousands of these things. And I think the maximum we ever sold in any one year was about 200 SM5s. Oh, wow. So, you know, they were seen in high profile applications, but we didn't sell that many. So uh, Bob Carr and engineering said, well, maybe we need to produce a on-air microphone that's a little bit less expensive and a little less bulky. The SM5 is huge. It's about the size of an American football. <laughs> you know, yeah. When, when you look at, yeah. You've you showed it, right? me some pictures before we did yeah. this interview and I, right. anyone that's listening to this, I'd recommend going and having a Google. They are, they are big things. They are big foam on the end of it. Uh, so they basically took the inner cartridge, a Unidyne 3, and came up with the SM7 over a period of about two or three years. Uh, and that came out in 72. So the SM7 was really inspired by the SM5. However, we never advertised the SM7 as an overhead boom mic. It was pretty much always as a voiceover mic. Interestingly enough, the it, recording studios actually caught on to it fairly quickly. Um, one of the first recording studios to use it was the Rolling Stones mobile studio, uh, in the early 70s. And a lot of Mick Jagger's studio recordings that, that, that made are actually on an SM7. They will they'll mic Mick with a condenser, primarily a Neumann, and an SM7, and then listen back to both of them and see which one sits better in the mix. So we've got, uh, I've seen a photo of Mick uh, in a Paris studio, 1977, 78, SM7 in front of him. Um, and so that's been actually a fairly well-known microphone for him. But it wasn't a big seller. I mean, you know, I mean, it came out and um, I think from around 1972 to around 2008, sold about the same amount every year. Far more than the SM5, but nothing like an SM58 or an SM57. So it was one of those microphones that you look at it every year and you go, oh, the sales aren't great, but they're not too bad. And you just kind of let it you just kind of let it continue on. So there there are some there are two variations. And if I'm getting ahead of myself, stop. But I thought no, we'd talk no, about what. Uh, so we had the SM7 from 1972 up to around uh, don't don't quote me on the dates mid 90s, and then what we had to make a change to it because what happened is in radio studios where it was being used for voiceover, they started using um, monitors very close to the microphone that would show the text for the radio people to read off. Rather than reading off paper, they're reading off monitors. And these early monitors admitted local stray electromagnetic fields. And if the microphone was too close, you would hear hum and buzz from the microphone because of the monitors. So, you know, of course the microphone always gets blamed. And in this case, we, we, were, just, we were just picking up the stray fields that the, microphone, that the monitors were putting out. So we had to redesign the humbucking coil. And so the SM7A basically is an SM7 with an improved humbucking coil to get, attenuate the stray electromagnetic fields coming from the video monitors. Uh, and then the, and it was about, ooh, see, so in the early 2000, we bring out the SM7B. Now, the only difference 
with the SM7B over the SM7A is the bulbous windscreen. So when you buy an SM7B, you get two windscreens in there. You get the original sleek conical one, and then you get the slightly large bulbous one. And the slightly large bulbous one is simply a miniature version of the shape that was on that SM5. And so there were people that were just always on to us, I'll never buy an SM7 because the SM5 was so much better. These are typically old radio guys, right? And I can say that because I'm an old radio guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so all of a sudden we bring out the SM7B and now it looks on the, you know, when you put the bigger windscreen on, it kind of looks like a sleeked SM5. And all of a sudden it was okay. And that's really when it started to pick up as far as sales go. So, but it was still, relatively slow, you know, no, nothing like an SM57 or SM58. So that's how you get the three three models. So let's just track that history very quickly. So it, it's bought yep. out as a replacement to the SM5 as a, as a sleek uh, model. Not, not as a replacement. It, it, they, they were sold alongside of each other. It was it was ah. an alternative, an alternative. SM5 all went up to 1988 before it was discontinued. So they, they were on them on the market together. So it's brought out as uh, something to accompany the SM5. They're both on the market together as an alternative. And yep. then there's a couple of revisions done to it as technology changes. The humbucking coil is improved. The, the right. windscreen is, is uh, options are changed. So we start to get something that looks very much like the mic that we, we know today. Correct. But I'm assuming at this point, it's still not this stratospherically recognizable microphone that we know now. So when did that happen? When did it suddenly get picked up? It's around 2007 and 2008, and uh, podcasters started to like this microphone. Now, you know, um, podcasting started to get popular around that time. Maybe it's probably, I'm sure it was there earlier, but that's when it really started to pick up. And then podcasters started using it, and people started talking about it. Podcasters started to tell other podcasters about it, and then people would see podcasts where there was video, and they'd see that microphone there. And that's when it really started to accelerate. Uh, and then, not, you know, I, I can't tell you exact date on this, Jack, but gamers also mm -hmm. got a hold of this, probably influenced by the podcasters. Uh, and it just started to accelerate, 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 accelerate. It's really strange. You have this microphone that for 35 years just sat there. And, you know, and did, did okay, you know, and it was always one of those, every year you look at things, what are you going to discontinue? And it was never bad enough to discontinue, but it was never good enough to really push mm -hmm. until podcast was coming out. I mean, sure, it didn't do anything about it. They, they found us. And now I think, um, you know, some quick math, literally, I think maybe in 2020, we might be selling... Um, maybe 75 to 100 times the amount that we wow. did in the early 2000s. Yeah, it's not like just a factor of two or four. It's like tens and tens and tens. So I don't know the exact numbers, but it's huge. I just know that I think that uh, now our manufacturing capabilities, which we've been increasing and increasing, I think now uh, what we can make in one week probably was more than we used to sell it in an entire year. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's just strange. So, so think about this as a, as a manufacturer or your product manager, you know, yeah, your boss comes to you and he says, you know, Jack, we've given that microphone 35 years. I, I think it's time to give up. And, I, and you say to me, no boss in the 36th year, it's going to take off. <laughs> no one's going to believe you. And yet here, here it is. Are. Well, so on that subject, then the, the examples that you've given is, is to, to, the, the applications it found itself in 
podcasting, gaming, these are obviously very vocal focused, very speech focused yeah. applications. So yeah. why is SM7B the solution from a mechanical and engineering perspective? What makes it so good at this specific job? Well, it's a dynamic microphone, first of all, rather than condenser microphone. Dynamic microphones just in general kind of give you that voiceover sound. Uh, the high end rolls off a little bit. You know, you don't have all the sibilance aspects of it. Um, when you have them in a noisy environment, like we're all broadcasting from home now or recording from home out, as I am today, uh, they tend to, for a lot of reasons, not be as sensitive to background noise than uh, a condenser is. Uh, and I, it's really probably too much to get into that, but put, putting a dynamic and a condenser in the same room, and assuming they're the same quality, you'll just hear a lot more distracting noise from a condenser than you will a dynamic. Um, the the switches on the back, the, uh, the the switches where you can alter the frequency spots, roll off, at, uh, roll off the low end, flat low end or peak the high end or not have a peak tie end that allows people to kind of tailor them to their voices which is nice you know and a very simple thing without doing it later in eq uh fabulous shock mount inside really good uh, uh vibrational isolation mount uh and the fact that when you put that big larger windscreen on it and with the actual diaphragm set back a couple inches it's very hard to pop them so it also allows you to work the microphone close and avoid a lot of the pee popping that you would get. So there's a lot of different reasons that, that it works out. Um, just happens to be the right combination of of uh, features that work well for this. And and your voice sounds great on it. Uh, there's also an extended low end. It's supposed to, you know, I, I told you it's a Unidyne 3 cartridge, but it's a modified Unidyne 3 cartridge. Um, the rear chamber, the rear acoustic chamber is larger than it is on an SM57. And so that extends the low end. Uh, and also the diaphragm is a little more compliant. It moves a little bit easier, uh, and that helps you with the low end as well. So there are differences, and that's why it doesn't sound exactly like an SM57. It's like an SM57 with more low end and more fullness, for lack of a better term. It's just an example of we have produced an excellent standard of speech microphone that happened to be there when the world went to a much more speech focused type of, of, uh, of content, I guess. Right. Right. And, you know, and our history is filled with examples of like that. You know, we create, we create a product for one thing and it just happens to be waiting for when people need it for something else. Well, and we find ourselves where we are today, which is with a slightly reimagined version. So we've had this now in our portfolio for, you know, for many, many years. And as you mentioned, it starts to pick up in 2008. And as we sit here recording this in 2020, we have just released the MV7, which we'll talk into a little bit more detail about in a moment. But could you talk a little bit about why we might have looked to create a USB version of the SM7B? To take the SM7 and to get it into a computer requires a couple steps. Typically, you need a preamplifier. Now, a, a dynamic microphone like this, like the SM7, doesn't have electronics built into it like a condenser does. And when you have that electronics built into a condenser, you can add some gain. You can add 15, 20, 30 dB of gain, which helps it get the signal up. You don't have that in the SM7. So most of the time you need to, first of all, go into a preamp of some sort, or at least uh, a USB interface that has enough gain in it. So sometimes it's two steps. You'll need a preamp and then you need a USB interface. So a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, I gotta buy the mic and I gotta buy a preamp and I gotta buy this USB interface. That's just too complicated for, for some folks. 
you know, if you got a studio, you don't think twice about it. You probably already have a good mic preamp. Uh, and for people who grew up more in the analog area, adding preamps, no big deal. But there is a different generation that just says it's too complicated. I want to be able to just plug this into my computer. Can't do that with an SM7 without putting interface in it. So the MV7 has the ability to plug directly into your computer via USB. It's got a headphone um, jack on it so you can monitor. That's how I'm monitoring right now. Through my through the MV7 and my headphone jack, uh, and cleverly, I think this is so clever. We've also got an XLR balanced output on it, so you can come out mic level almost just like it's an SM7. You know now, and so what we're doing today is we're talking to each other. I'm using my MV7 going into my computer. That's how you're hearing me over in the UK. But at the same time, I'm taking that XLR output and going into a local recording devices here, a sound devices mix pre three, and that's recording a digital waveform or WEV, or you say WAV, I guess, I'm not sure all the different <laughs> yeah. ways we just describe it, uh, for us to edit together. So it's really a cool product, plug and play if you want. Yeah. There are there are apps too, you can adjust if you want to, but I haven't used the app whatsoever. And uh, I can also get a analog output like it's an SM7. Very, It's a very clever product, I think. It's ingenious. And I'm using a slightly different setup over here. So we're, okay. we're recording this over, you know, like, I, I guess, a Zoom type call. And we've got Zoom audio to each other. But as Michael said, we're recording the audio locally. And while Michael right. has got an, uh, an analog XLR out the back, what I've actually done is taken my um, iPhone and I'm using the Motif app and I've plugged my MV7 into it. And I've there's a little ah. bit of very clever DSP that sits in these MV7s um, that will allow you to process that dynamic um, microphone capsule in a number of different ways. So I've got this set up so that, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm quite close to it really. So I've got it set to say mm -hmm. that I'm close to the capsule and it's then going to apply some compression, apply some EQ to give me the tonality that I like. And I can pick, uh, I, I just want a neutral tonality, which is what I'm using. I could also say I want it to be slightly darker, which I guess would be the traditional compressed radio type sound. Um, right. And I could say that I want it to be quite bright as well. So that would be, um, I guess, a, a more modern sound. That's really good for, for you know, if you are using it for Skype use and things of that nature. Uh, but two slightly different applications for it here. And there's plenty of features in this. As you said, we've got a, uh, the ability to headphone monitor out the back on a three and a half mil jack. Mm -hmm. the, I think the XLR and the, the USB functionality to be used at the same time is genius because that's how a lot of yes, podcasters so will record stuff like this. But will you be able to speak to some of the other similarities and differences with the SM7B? Because this isn't quite an SM7B, is it? There's some other stuff going on. No, it's it, it's not. It's certainly influenced by it. You, know, you could consider it uh, has some of the DNA of it. Um, could it be considered, a, you know, a, a son or daughter of it? Yeah, probably more like a cousin, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it is a dynamic element. It is not the same element that's in the SM7. SM7 is based upon a Unidyne 3, and this is not. Um, it's an element that's sure designed for other applications. Uh, and with some minor tweaking, it turns out to sound extremely good. And so it is a dynamic like that. Uh, the look of it uh, is has the yoke. Um, variation of it, and you can mount it upside down or right side up, however you want. Uh, regarding that, you know, uh, it does have. It, there are very similar, very similar sound characteristics. The timbre of it, 
Uh, and I think what's also clever is that on the SM7, you've got the switches on the back to alter the low end or alter the high end. And you can kind of do the same thing with that, but having to use the application that you've got. So they really tried to make it you know, like an SM7. Um, has a wonderful shock mount inside it or a vibration mount like the SM7 as well. So they looked at all the different things that made the SM7 popular and said, now how can we do that at a lower price point uh, with a USB output and headphone output? And I think that we, we accomplished that pretty well. And um, we mentioned obviously podcasters and gamers, they're, they're two very specific users that I think this is, is gonna be really popular with. But yes. do you think you could use this as a, as a music production tool as well if you wanted to? Oh, yeah. Have an acoustic guitar, yeah. have some I, vocals? Yeah, I, I haven't tried it yet, but I've talked to other folks. I, th I think you're one of them who have used it, and it seems to work ex extremely well for that. Um, you know, lest we forget, the SM7, we mentioned Mick Jagger, but of course the SM7's probably most famous recording was uh, Michael Jackson Thriller album. So I haven't had a chance to use it for musical applications, but I believe you have. And I've heard from Soren Pedersen, who is uh, one of the product managers. He's also used it for almost everything and has been very happy of it. Why don't you tell me about your uh, experience with using it? Well, I used it to do some acoustic guitar recordings and I used the, um, the XLR out for the recording and funnily enough the the um the usb interface for monitoring so i the person oh. that was playing the guitar could monitor back through what they were doing and, and kind of hear what yeah. was going on so it was really really useful for that i didn't have to set up a second run at all it was all inbuilt and when i got to um then mixing it and putting stuff together i was so surprised at how detailed the sound was for a start you know it was a really nice cedar topped acoustic guitar with with uh we just put some new strings on it as well so it was a lot of fine detail and a lot of harmonics that i thought i was going to lose they were all right. still there we also right. used um we kind of hit the body of the guitar to get some low sounds out of it and, mm. and, mm -hmm. and they came across really well with a little bit of a bump in, in the mixing process so it absolutely stood up i think as as, as, a, as a good acoustic guitar recording microphone and i've got plans to try it on some saxophones and some other kind of weird and wonderful things yeah. I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's going to be amazing at it so with the sm7b having the success that it's got now in podcasting and gaming and being such a recognizable microphone do you think the sm58 is going to get challenged do you think that the sm7 is potentially <laughs> more recognizable now or will it ever be well that's, a, that's an interesting question um I know that the SM7 will never match the SM58 in actual quantity. I mean, uh, we, we sold our millionth SM58 decades ago. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's, it, it, it'll never catch up. But it's interesting that because of the fact that the uh, SM7 and, and the MV7 will be seen on YouTubes and podcasting and so forth, it may, in a certain way, get a notoriety that the SM58 doesn't have. Now, if you watch a a YouTube video or see a live concert, you're going to see SM58s live all the time. But there's probably a lot of podcasters and gamers who are not musicians, you know, and 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 they may say, "Oh, wow!" They think of Sure and they think of the SM7, or we hope the MV7 in, in, in the future. <laughs> so it may create may have a different notoriety in, in a different market segment. But, you know, we're just fortunate that we've had these products that have stayed around for decades and still, I mean, the SM58 came out in 1966, right? Sometimes, Jack, patience is a virtue. What a sentiment to end this interview on. Michael, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jack. Good to talk to you. Good to see you too.